Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can start on time and realize that the time left for us, for this world, for this age, is in your hands. Uh, we want to make every minute count of the 60 minutes that we have going through the book of Revelation tonight, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We pray that we would hear what your Holy Spirit would have to say as, to us as individuals, to this local church and other local church rep represented here, and those that are watching online. Uh, we ask your blessing on this time tonight that Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up, in whose name we pray. Amen. For those of you watching online, we know that we have people watching online uh, from Afghanistan. And we thank God for you. We are praying for you. You are not forgotten. We are praying for you. We know we have those watching online from other parts of this country. And we know that we have those watching online from Vanuatu, most primitive country in the world, in the South Pacific. Oh, be glad to must look on you back again. We pray God bless, bless you big time. Bye-bye. Look at you back again. So uh, that's just a little bit of Bishlama. Fun language, easy to learn. And uh, you probably, even though you've never been to Vanuatu, you probably understood half of what I said. And so it's very easy to pick up. It's a fun language. So we welcome you from Vanuatu, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Well, the message to the church of Thyatira is where we left off last week. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Someone asked earlier, what version am I using? For the sake of clarity, I am using a translation, not a paraphrase, but a translation. It's called the New Living Translation. Is it the best to do an in-depth word study? Probably not. Uh, however, for the book of Revelation and for the diversity represented here on Tuesday evenings, it's probably the best book as we just uh, go through the book in a not spending two years, but just spending a few weeks. So it is a translation, uh, but it is in modern English. So that's the version I'm using. Uh, feel free, however, to use any version that you are comfortable with. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. I will give to each of you whatever you deserve, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. 
to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority and I received from my father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. The fourth period of time begins in the year 60, 60 AD, but we'll just call it 60, and it continues through the year 1500. The Apostle John is not writing for this time period. This time period had not yet come. He is on the island of Patmos. He is in the spirit on the Lord's day all alone as a slave laborer, exiled because he is a believer, and the Holy Spirit comes to him. An angel comes upon him. An angel appears before him and reveals heaven to him and reveals things that are to come to pass. The seven churches that he writes these seven letters to correspond beautifully to the history of the church. So I just want you to be aware that as the Holy Spirit reveals these truths to John on the island of Patmos, he is not revealing church history. He is revealing things to come but it just so happens that the things to come correspond exactly in the same order as we make the circle going from one church to another church to another church. And now the fourth church uh, here uh, in Thyatira, and that's exactly the progression of church history from the first century. So the fourth period of time begins in 60, the year 60 continues through the year 1500, and this includes the period of time, you historians know, the Reformation. You may remember Martin Luther and the Reformation. Thyatira is about 38 miles from Pergamos and 32 miles from Sardis. Thyatira was a very important trading location on the Roman road from Pergamum to Laodicea. It was a major metropolitan area. The pagan god Apollo, the son of Zeus, according to Greek mythology, um, was the god that they mostly worshipped there. The city was famous for its dyeing of cloth, also for the exquisite quality of the cloth that came from a very special type of sheep that were outside the city of, Th of, of Thyatira. Uh, it was also the center for the indigo trade, and during his second missionary journey that we read about in Acts chapter 16, uh, the Apostle Paul traveled to Philippi where he met a woman named, named Lydia, you remember this, who happened to be from Thyatira, and she was praying near a river, and Lydia was a seller of purple. It could have been the dye, or it could have been this exquisite cloth that you can find even to this day. Robin and I have enjoyed visiting Turkey. We've enjoyed visiting the world's oldest continual, continuously open shopping center called a bazaar, the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, Turkey. And it was there uh, that Lydia uh, was, was uh, selling either the purple or this exquisite cloth, purple cloth, and um, 
as she listened to Paul's preaching, she became a believer. Her entire household became a believer, and they gave their lives to Christ. They committed their lives to Christ. They were baptized. And when she returned to Thyatira, Lydia helped spread the gospel throughout the city. Now let's, let's uh, move forward a little bit to the year 360, when a young man by the name of Patrick was born. Patrick was born in, I'm sorry, 390, the year 390, in Dumbarton, Scotland. Uh, not long after he was born, in his late teens, Irish pirates invaded Dumbarton and captured him, took him away, and sold him into slavery in Ireland. Um, later on, he escaped and he went to the country of the area of Gaul, which would be modern-day France, and he became a monk. He later returned home to his family, but he sensed that God was calling him to return of all places to Ireland, the same place that he was forced to serve as a slave. And so he, along with a few others, went on a missions team to Ireland in the year 432. For the next 30 years, Patrick shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ireland. Thousands of people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Churches were founded, independent churches, independent of Rome. Irish monasteries were established. They became very respected centers of, of learning. The Bible was the primary subject because they knew that the Bible contained everything they needed to know. The Latin, the Latin was the uh, language of education in these Irish monasteries. As young men came into the monasteries, they went out uh, as missionaries, uh, not only throughout Europe, but even beyond Europe as well. Now, the Roman Catholic hierarchy wasn't real pleased with these monasteries because they were not a recognized part of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't approve of this work. This ministry had a powerful, powerful influence in Western Europe all the way up until the year 950. So that happened during this time. Now, fire and polished bronze that we read about in this passage referred to judgment. Maybe in the version you're reading, it might mean brass. In verse 18 is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God rather than the son of man. A woman in the church at Thyatira named Jezebel called herself a prophetess. Be careful. Be careful if you meet anybody, whether it's here in the United States or any place in the world that calls themselves a prophet or a prophetess. Be very, very careful. Your antenna should go up. That's a red flag right there. She encouraged promiscuous behavior. She encouraged idolatry. She encouraged the eating of meat that was offered to idols. You, you, you historians remember that in the pagan temples of Zeus and so forth, that uh, meat was offered to idols, but there was a lot of meat left over, and the meat was the best cut, and the meat that was left over that wasn't burned was, was sold in the, in the public uh, bazaar in the public market there. And uh, there was nothing wrong with the meat. Uh, and, and 
yet eating meat that was offered to idols, although it wasn't wrong at all, there was no law against it, there was no sin about it, other Christians, particularly younger Christians, said, wait a minute, this meat had been offered to idols, and it's really a good cut of meat. It's, it's great barbecuing, it's you know, great filet mignon or whatever it might be, but we can't eat it. It bothered their conscience. And um, so Jezebel, she was much more focused on her own personal pleasure and her own personal freedom than the concerns of other believers. And she uh, ridiculed them and she said, no, this is fine. Well, finally, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had to address this issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he taught that although meeting, meat, eating this meat offered to idols was not a sin against God, uh, and although it won't affect us personally in our walk with the Lord, it might affect those around us. So we need to be very careful with what we do and the influence that that has on those around us. We need to be willing to forego rights that we have. Are we free in Christ? Absolutely we're free. We are free. We are not under the law. But sometimes, as mature believers, we will want to give up some of these rights that we have so that our testimony to others will not be compromised. And so this is why uh, I'm very careful and I appreciate the model of this local church. I appreciate the model of Pastor Daniel being very careful not to embrace and promote one political ideology over another political ideology. Because those things that are really hot right now politically, those things that people are really talking about a lot, unfortunately dividing communities, even dividing churches, even dividing families, they won't be the hot topic five years from now or ten years from now. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul addressed. We don't want to be confusing our weaker brothers and sisters. And this is what it truly means to love God and to love others, to love people. Well, the deeper truths that we read about in verse 24 here were so-called secret insights that she had. These so-called teachers guaranteed to promote a deeper spiritual life. They were saying they alone knew the, knew the mysteries of, of the deep things. Beware of that. Beware of that. There is a well-known, very well-known public speaker who was embraced by the largest denomination, Christian denomination in the world. Many of you know that's the Southern Baptist denomination, uh, the largest uh, Protestant denomination, I should say. Uh, Roman Catholic says the largest, but the Protestant would be the Southern Baptist. She was endorsed and she received support from them. And then she set herself as having insight into deeper truths in the scripture. She had tens of thousands of primarily women following her, but within the last several months, she's gone into some very strange places that is nowhere to be found in scripture, saying that she alone has the insight. And so this is in the news if you follow these things. And uh, we need to be very, very careful of those that promote themselves as having insider knowledge, deeper insight. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's the Holy Spirit that will reveal as you go through the word of God 
how that applies to your life. You don't need someone else to give you secret information, secret numbers, secret truths. Just read the Word of God. Simply read the Word and read the Word simply and the Holy Spirit will reveal what He wants you to know. Well, um, until I come in verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the churches, is the first promise of the return of Jesus Christ found in these letters to the seven churches. This is the first time we hear that Jesus is saying, I am coming back again. And this is how we know, gang, that this church goes on to Jesus' second coming. And it is continuing even today. The Old Testament image of Jesus Christ as the son of righteousness that we read about in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and the Old Testament image of Jesus Christ as the son of righteousness uh, is replaced in the New Testament by the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. A morning star appears just before dawn. I remember so many nights as a combat uh, infantryman when I was in the Marine Corps in, in Vietnam during the heaviest fighting in the years 1967 and 1968. That's ancient history to many of you, but I was a young Marine then. And up all night, uh, usually, the, night, the, the, night, the fighting took place at night, and uh, I couldn't wait for the sun to come up. And just before the first glimpse of of the sunlight, the first glimpse of dawn, that seemed to be the darkest time of the night. Maybe because the night had been going on for several hours. I don't know. But then the morning star, and then the dawn came, and then the sun came up, and oh, we all breathed a sigh of relief. We had made it through. Another battle, another night. A morning star appears just before dawn, when the night is the coldest and the darkest. When the world is at its bleakest point, Jesus Christ is going to burst upon the scene, bringing his promised reward. He indeed is the morning star. Well, the next church we're going to look at, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, the church in Sardis. Let's read what the Bible says. Revelation 3, 1 through 6, write this letter to the angel of the church of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as an unexpected thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. When Sergius III became Pope from the years 904 to 967, he ushered in a period of time that historians call 
the rule of harlots, the rule of harlots, um, or prostitutes, if you will. Uh, his mistress, in fact, he had more than one, but his mistresses, they publicly accompanied him when he would come and go in and out of the papal palace in Rome. His grandson, John X, continued this legacy of his grandfather until he was killed while in the very act of adultery. So next along the papal succession came Benedict IX. He became pope when he was only 12 years old, and he was so corrupt that the citizens of Rome, who were not necessarily Christian, but they saw the corruptness, they drove him out of the city. So King Henry finally stepped in, King Henry III. And he replaced him with a new pope by the name of Clement III. King Henry III wrote in the archives that can be found even today, I quote, I appoint no one from Rome because no priest can be found in this city who is free from pollution and fornication and simony. Simony was the old English word. It was just the practice of selling positions of leadership in the church to the highest bidder. Do you want to have an important position in the church? Well, pay up. And that's how it was practiced in those days. So John Wycliffe comes along the scene, born in England in the year 1330, and he challenged this papal control and this church hierarchy and this continual sacrifice where people had to give sacrifices over and over and over again. And the statue of our Lord, the crucifix, uh, hung in all the churches and throughout community, throughout the communities with Jesus still on the cross. We know he's not still on the cross. Well, and that's why evangelical Christians, we were some, some wear crosses around their neck, you know, is with, without Jesus hanging on the cross. There's not a little Jesus hanging on the little cross around your neck because he is risen. He rules and reigns and he's preparing a place for us in, in heaven. So John Wycliffe, he sees all this stuff going on and he speaks out and the church excommunicates him. Now remember, the Roman Catholic Church was the only church in the world at that time. Oh, there were many other religions. There were many other gods. But as far as a Christian faith, it was only the Roman Catholic Church. That was it. And he strongly believed that the people needed the scripture in their own language. The Bible written in Latin was to be read only by the priests, not by the people. In fact, in many of the churches, it was literally chained to the pulpit in the church so the people would not have access to it because they were not qualified. He said no. So he completed the first translation of the New Testament into English in the, in the year 1380. And then he, 1380, pardon me? This is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, thank you. And then John Wycliffe completed the English translation of the Old Testament in the year 1382, just two years later. So by the year 1382, the Bible had been translated from the Hebrew and the Greek to the Latin, and I won't get into all that history, but he comes along and translates it into English. 
Bible translators worked with him. He didn't work alone. And you might remember some of their names. John Huss, a mighty, mighty man of the faith and a, and a spiritual giant. Hugh Latimer. Both of them were burned at the stake for committing this heresy, for translating the Bible into English so that people could have the Bible in their own language. John Wycliffe wasn't burned at the stake, but after he died, the church fathers hated him so much that now the people could have the Bible rather than just the priests, that they dug up his body and they burned what remained and they scattered his ashes all over the place. He was reviled, he was hated by the local church. So about 100 years after him in the year 1483, after John Wycliffe, comes Martin Luther, born in Saxon, that's modern day Germany. He enrolled in seminary. He was a son of coal miners. His father and mother said, we don't want you working in the coal mines. It was a very dangerous job. Men didn't live very long. We want you to seek out God. And so he went to seminary and he earned his doctorate degree in theology. But once again, this was the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. And he had to earn God's favor. And to earn God's favor, because he so much wanted to be in favor with God and to be a holy man, he would regularly beat himself. I don't know if you've ever seen that on videos or movies. I remember years ago when I was in Pakistan, there was a lot of commotion. And I was on the second floor of a building, and I looked out the window down below uh, in... Uh, in uh, um, well, I forgot where it was in Islamabad. It wasn't, it, it, it was Peshawar is where it was. In Peshawar, Pakistan, I looked down the window and there were hundreds of men, all men, wearing white garments, all white garments, and they were walking down the street in a parade, just hundreds of them close to each other, and they all had chains and they were all whipping themselves on the back and their white garments, you know, from the back, you could imagine, just blood ran down the white garments. And uh, although... I don't know what sect or what religion they were, but they were trying to find favor with God. Um, so in 1483, Martin Luther comes on the scene. He enrolls in seminary. He earns his doctorate in theology, tries to earn God's favor by beating himself, by sleeping outside in freezing temperatures. Uh, he fasted for weeks at a time. For weeks at a time, he avoided water 10 days at a time, not even water 10 days at a time. But, but he felt he could never become righteous enough to earn God's favor. He, he knew God was holy, and he knew that he fell so far short. So one day, one of Martin's friends, a monk, urged Martin to read the book of Habakkuk. Now, Martin was actually on his way to Rome to seek an audience with the Pope to find out, what can I do to be righteous? And that's when his friend intervened. Why Habakkuk? Why the book of Habakkuk, that little book in the back of the Old Testament? Well, because the prophet Habakkuk, the man Habakkuk, also wrestled with some of these same religious questions that Martin Luther was, was wrestling with. And when Luther, when Martin Luther read Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, Look at the proud. They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. He said, that's it. That is it. He cried, if I'm going to be just, it's not because of what I do 
or who I am, but, but by faith, by faith in what God has done and who he is. So in 1517, he nailed a parchment in which he had written, you know, the 97 or the 95 thesis to the university door uh, at Wittenberg, the place of theological education there. And when the church in Rome asked him to take it down, to recant, to apologize for what he did, what he did, Martin Luther replied these famous words, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. The Reformation was born. It swept across Europe, and people turned to Jesus Christ in the Bible as never before in all of human history. By the year 1600, by the year, by the year 1600, over 80% of all the people um, living in Bohemia and Austria and Hungary were Protestants. That's where the word Protestant comes. They were protesting against this system of the, of the hierarchy in the church. But, but the worst bloodshed in history took place immediately following the Reformation. By the year 1602, over 70% of these Christians had been killed by the church. This was a greater genocide than the, than, than the persecution of Christians under the Roman empires. More emperors, more people were killed by the church during this time than all the Christians slaughtered in the arena of the lions and all the rest by the Roman emperors more than the Holocaust in Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. So understanding the context of the Reformation is vital to understanding the message to the church in Sardis. So Sardis was located at the base of a small mountain by the name of Timolus, 32 miles from Pergamum, 27 miles from Philadelphia. And the word Sardis means remnant. Sardis was built on a, a bluff 1,000 feet high, uh, roughly the same height as, uh, as uh, Missouri Heights is above uh, Highway 82, roughly. And uh, it was an extremely wealthy city. Uh, it seemed invincible. Gold was discovered in a river just right along the banks uh, there nearby Sardis. And King Aliatus, who reigned from about 610 to 5. 60 BC, before the time of Christ, he minted the world's first coins. So the oldest coins in the world were minted and distributed and used in the city of Sardis. Sardis was the home to the um, temple of the Pegas, pagan goddess Cybele, who was very similar to the uh, pagan goddess Diana, what we studied about and found about there at Ephesus. But in 549, when Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon, he also uh, conquered Sardis. So Cyrus conquered Sardis. And now the problem in the Sardis church wasn't heresy, but spiritual death. Jesus said, although the church had a reputation for being alive, in verse 1, they were dead. The church in, Sar in Sardis was infested with sin. Its deeds were evil. Oh, it looked good on the outside but it was corrupt, very corrupt on the inside. And Jesus said in verse three that we just read, if you don't get back to basics 
I'm going to come to you as a thief. To be clothed in white, what we read here in verse 5, literally means to be made pure. Jesus said every believer is eternally secure. You and I, because we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, because our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and God's pencil doesn't have an eraser, we are eternally secure. The Bible says in John 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them away from my Father's hand. That's Jesus speaking in John chapter 10. So if you doubt your salvation, go back. Go back to that date maybe you've written in the flyleaf of your Bible or on your calendar or in your diary or someplace else. That is the day, that is the month, that is the year that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you don't remember the exact date, that's okay. As long as one point in your life you've committed your life to Jesus Christ. You said, Lord, I want to be your disciple. I'm not just looking for fire insurance. Those that believe in Jesus, that's not good enough. Almost everybody in the United States believes in Jesus. The Bible says the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. Almost everybody around the world believes in Jesus. A lot of people are good people. They're good people and they believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. Their name must be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There must be a point in time that they have cried out to God and said, I'm a sinner. I admit it. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on that cross for me. Your blood is the perfect sacrifice. It makes me whole. I don't understand all of this, but I receive it as a gift. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Paul writes that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 38 and 39. So here in verse 5, Jesus said, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Won't that be cool? Won't that be cool? Henry Hill, today's his birthday. And when Henry goes to heaven, Jesus is going to say, maybe the trumpets will sound. I don't know. Henry Hill. Here's my father, God. (laughs) Now, it may not be exactly like that. That may be a little dramatic and maybe not quite accurate. But something along those lines. The Bible says that Jesus will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. We are his. He'll never let us go. Well, let's continue. Chapter 3, the message to the church in Philadelphia. No, it's not, uh, it's, it's not the Philadelphia on the East Coast, the home of the Eagles. No, it's, it's not that one. It's a different Philadelphia. Let's read about it in Turkey. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, 
no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Verse 10, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God. The new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Wow. Well, what a great church to finish up on. The church in Philadelphia represents the modern missionary movement. It's a missionary church. This letter is one of only two letters to the seven churches where Jesus has nothing critical to say. Why? I believe it's, it's because the Philadelphians who were actively involved in missions and evangelism loved God and loved people. And the love, the Bible says, that they had for one another and for God covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4, 8. Now, the ancient city of Philadelphia was 27 miles from Sardis, 48 miles from Laodicea. Remember, we're going the same route that the mail carrier would go as he would deliver mail to these seven churches in order. And on one side of the city, the land was extremely fertile, had this incredibly rich soil that was just perfect for the growing of grapes. The quality of wine that was produced uh, here in these fields, uh, Philadelphia, was so good that the Roman poet Virgil, some of you might remember reading Virgil, struggling with Latin in college, he wrote about the excellence of the wine that came from Philadelphia. Philadelphia was founded in the year 189 by King Eumenes II, and when he died, his younger brother Atollus II named buildings after his older brother. He minted coins with his brother's image on one side and then other images on the other. And he continually was talking to others about how much he respected and even loved his, his brother. Uh, so the people of the town, they began to call this place Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. On May 30th, 1792, a radical young Christian that you may have heard of by the name of William Carey preached a very short sermon in a very small church from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, um, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And his theme was expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Williams said it was time for Christians to reach beyond their own borders, for the church to reach out and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world to people that were dying. William had been working as a shoemaker full-time since he was 14 years old. He never attended high school, but by the time he was 20, on his own, with no tutor, he taught himself Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, French, and Greek, and he became fluent in all of those languages. By the time I was 20, I was surfing. (laughs) By the age of 22, he was invited to serve as a pastor of a local Baptist church. And it was there that God gave William a vision of sailing across the ocean to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God gave William an anointing to do just that. So he said goodbye to his church. He set sail for India. And before he had returned home from India, this young man had not only shared the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout India, but he had planted dozens of churches across the Indian subcontinent. He translated the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, into Bengali. That's the main language, as most of you know, of India, even to this day. He built schools. He built hospitals. He supervised the start of India's first printing press, the first printing press in the whole subcontinent of Asia. Well, the printing press needed some paper. To get paper, he needed a paper mill. So he developed that, and he built a paper mill. Well, to run the paper mill, you need a steam engine. So he coordinated that, built a steam engine to run the mill so there would be paper to print the newspaper. He wrote the first English Bengali dictionary. He founded the first Christian college in all of Asia. Before he returned home from India, William Carey had translated the complete Bible, not with computers, before computer, just by old, you know, pen and bottled ink into the complete Bible into six languages and portions of the Bible into 29 other languages. William Carey had expected great things from God, and he attempted great things for God. God brought them to pass. And whenever God wants to do something wonderful, he gives that person a vision. The Bible teaches that God doesn't call the anointed. He anoints the called. And you are called. I am called. We are all called to the ministry different aspects, different types of ministry, but we are all called. How do I know? The Bible tells us so. And so he anoints us. Well, we read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 that Jesus holds the keys of death and the grave. The keys of death and the grave. Now, now, to this missionary church in Philadelphia, he says he holds an additional key, the key of David, we read about in verses 7 and 8. This key, the key of David, represents Christ's authority to open the door to his future kingdom. After the door is opened, no one can close it. Satan can't close it. The demons can't close it. Politicians can't close it. Nobody can close it. Salvation is assured. 
but once it is closed, no one can open it. Once it is closed, no one can open it. There may be a typographical error in your notes, so correct those if you need to, because remember, I type one finger at a time, and I all do, th do this all manually. Judgment is certain. Jesus is the one who opened the doors for William Carey in India. Jesus is the one who opened the doors for Hudson Taylor in China. Jesus is the one who opened the doors for the orchard in Vanuatu, in Afghanistan. But he's also the one who shuts doors that can't be opened. Those individuals are the ones that receive a shut door are the ones who continually say, no, 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 no. Not now, later. Not now, later. To the Holy Spirit. It's not Pastor Daniel. It's not Billy Graham. It's not some evangelist or some missionary that convicts us of sin. No one does that. No one can do that. The Bible says that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin and gives us insight that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But those individuals that say no, 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 week after week, month after month, year after year, there comes a point in time, the Bible says, when the Holy Spirit will leave them alone. They will no longer be convicted of their sin, and their eternal security is, and their eternal destiny is secure in hell. Those individuals saying no to the Holy Spirit of God, convicting them of their need to, of a Savior, will be unable to say yes at the time they're locked into eternal destruction. And so for those of you that have friends that say, well, maybe when I get older, maybe some other time, that may be the last time. The Holy Spirit may just leave them alone. They may be good people. Oh, almost everybody believes in Jesus. And they do good things, and they're nice, and they're good friends. But they've never knelt their knee before the Lord. That door will be closed and no longer opened. So, um, those individuals that, uh, that will not say yes are going to end in eternal destruction. Now, although the church in Philadelphia had little strength, it's a church that's returned to the word and has a desire for the word and studies the word we read about in verse 8. So who are these people who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they're Jews but are not that we read about in verse 9? Who are those people? Well, I'm glad you asked. In John's day, there were these Jews who were persecuting the believers. In our day, the reference may be to the increasing number of people in the Christian community who say, because God is done with the Jew, we are Israel. We are the lost tribe of Israel. We make up Israel. The church is the new Israel. You know, it's interesting to note that 100 years prior to the deaths of the over six million Jews in the Holocaust during World War II, preachers in Europe and in America began to teach that God was through with the Jew. Nothing could be further from the truth. Anti-Semitism 
is always a sign of those who are not reading the Bible. Scripture clearly teaches that God is not through with Israel. The best chapter to read is, is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Makes it very clear. There are three categories of people in the Bible. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. Well, who's the church? The church is made up of former Jews and former Gentiles. And in fact, the reason for the tribulation is that God isn't through with Israel. We're going to see when we get there in the weeks to come what's going to happen, that God is going to burst upon the scene and he is going to come to the salvation of Israel not once but twice in two great world wars that are about a thousand years apart. We'll get there. The rapture is when Jesus comes to get us, but the second coming is when Jesus comes back to restore Israel, when he sets his feet down, when he lands on the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia in verse 10, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now the Greek word from here in verse 10 is ek, and uh, that literally means out of, out of. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is saying, you of little strength, you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. You've gone through the open door and you did not deny me. Because of this, I will take you out of the time of testing that will come upon the whole world. He is going to take us out of this time. This testing is not simply a local persecution. Throughout history, the church has had persecution and more persecution is to come. The church in Philadelphia was experiencing this, but it's a time of testing, the Bible says, that will encompass the entire planet. There's only one event that fits this description that comes upon the entire planet, and that's the tribulation. And Jesus said, I am coming soon, in verse 11. The Greek word translated quickly is tachu in the Greek, which means suddenly. I'm going to come back suddenly, Jesus Christ can come back at any moment. It could be tonight. Therefore, Jesus tells us, hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your salvation, or your crown. What crown? Well, we talked about this earlier. The answer, the answer is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Uh, after all, what gives us hope and joy and what gives our what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Paul identifies the crown as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible says that Jesus will write on them the name of my God. They will be from the citizens of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, from my God, and I also write on them my new name in verse 12. The Bible says not only... Are you going to have the glory of God emblazoned upon you, but you'll be a citizen of the new Jerusalem that is going to come down from heaven here on planet Earth? Proverbs 25.2 says, It's God's privilege to conceal things and the king's privilege to discover them. We are going to be kings and princes and priests in heaven. So we get to discover these things. Because we're a nation of kings and priests, how do we know? We read about that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. We'll be spending eternity exploring and enjoying 
all the incomparable aspects of God's majesty and his creativity. I believe we'll be able to travel at the speed of thought. We'll go throughout the universe and we'll see things that no scientist, no astronomer, no astronaut or cosmonaut has ever seen. It will be awesome. It will be just an ever-increasing ecstasy as we explore again and again his creation. Everything will be new. There'll be new things to experience and to explore all the time. Oh, heaven's going to be so great. I'm old and I get to go there soon. I can't wait. So may we have a heart for evangelism and a commitment to persevere for the love, with the love of God and the love of people as we look forward to our return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we have seven minutes left. <laughs> One more church to go through, the church at Laodicea. But you know what? I don't want to just go halfway. Can we pick that up next week? We'll pick that up next week. I plan to get through that. But, but you see how this corresponds with church history. And then if you go down a, a couple of pages, you'll come across some very interesting graphs. One of them uh, is the chronological view of Revelation by chapters. So um, there's a color code there, and you can see the first one is chapter 1 on the, uh, on the island of Patmos, and that's just the only one in brown. And then it goes through the church age in the blue color, and then the pink color, the tribulation period, and then the yellow color, the millennium, and then the green is the final color, the new heaven and the new earth. It's all there. So if you wanted to read through the book of Revelation in a chronological order, that is how you would do it. Uh, after that, I printed up another chart. I, I hope you received it. And that is um, uh, a harmonizing of uh, the uh, of, of uh, the different gospels regarding the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus taught about end times. He taught about heaven. He taught about what we're going to be covering. Uh, he taught about uh, the, the, the tribulation and, and uh, the church and so forth and so on. So once again, it's color-coded. Take a look at that. It's self-explanatory. Next week, I will address the question of how do I know that every prophecy has been fulfilled before Jesus must come back? You'll have that in writing. Somebody else asked me a question, will our pets be in heaven? And I have a whole half page just addressing that. Will your pets be in heaven? And I'm not going to answer that tonight. So I hope that you'll come back next week when we'll cover that. We'll finish the final uh, church in the book of Revelation. And uh, then we'll, the curtain will rise. And then we will begin with two chapters going through quickly a very vivid description of heaven. What will heaven look like? A place called heaven. It's going to be amazing. And then after that, we're going to take current events. Like I said, the news in one hand, the Bible in the other hand. We're going to talk about Russia. Yes, Russia is found in the Bible. We're going to talk about China. Yes, China is found in the Bible. We're talking about Germany and Turkey. Yes, Germany and Turkey are found in the Bible. What about the United States? Not in the Bible. So let's not try to force it in. Let's not try to shoehorn it in somehow. We'll talk about why the United States is not found in the Bible. Why is it not there? Because after all, it is the world's, at least today, uh, the world's premier military and economic power. 
After all, the United States in its relatively short history, about 250 years roughly, has sent out more missionaries to more places around the world than any other country in the history of the world. Why isn't it found in the Bible? So we'll talk about that. Then we'll go through the coming events. We'll go through the not one, but the two different battles of Armageddon, and uh, it, will, it will make sense. But I think it's important we lay this foundation of history, which uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed. I hope that you've followed along with me. Has it been helpful? The seven churches. So next time when somebody talks about the seven golden candlesticks, the seven lampstands, the seven churches, the sevenfold spirit and all that, you'll say, oh, I know about that. I can answer your question. And if you can't, you have your notes that you can refer to. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these men and women that have cut time out of their demanding schedules to, to drive to this place and to uh, dig into your word. And we thank you for the history of the church, how it just is just so beautifully unfolded in the order of the churches, the same order that John wrote the letters to, and how it applies to us today. Father, may, may we uh, be like those missionaries that were willing to trust you for great things, to attempt great things for you, and to believe that you would do great things through them. May we be those people. You're a big God. Give us a big vision, I pray, for our lives as individuals and in our local church. In Jesus' name, I ask your blessing upon every family represented here tonight and those watching online across the country and, and in Afghanistan and in Vanuatu and other places as well. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Did I go too fast tonight? Too slow? We got to pick up the pace a little bit, but we will get through the whole book of Revelation. I promise you that. God bless. Have a good evening. If you didn't get the notes, see Robin. Uh, if you want more brochures or whatever, see Robin. Well, we cut out all the...